This morning's reading is from the book of Judges, chapter 14, which is on page 257 in the Church Bibles. Judges, chapter 14, Samson's marriage. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. And in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. And when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you, can answer, if you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing. You hate me, you don't really love me, You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, 
the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As always, please keep the passage open in front of you. So uh, Judges chapter 14, if you've closed your Bibles, page uh, 257 is where we start. Let me pray for us. Father, please, would you teach us from this incident, this story, help us to understand what you are teaching us, what we are to learn, shape the way we think, open our eyes more to your greatness, and help us to change in the light of this passage. Amen. So we're actually looking at Judges chapters 14 and 15, but thank you, Jean, for reading chapter 14, which is uh, what I asked to be read at this point, but we will go into chapter 15 as well. When you've known someone for quite a long time, maybe you've known them for years, you kind of get to know what their pattern is, don't you? Their, their kind of way of doing things that maybe they always drink tea first thing in the morning, always have coffee later in the day. You know, you know what their routines are, their way of being. And then at some point, they surprise you. And they do something different. And you think, but that's not what you do. That's not the way you operate. So too with God. We can think we know how God operates. We know the kind of people he uses. We know the kind of thing he does. And then you come to Judges chapters 14 and 15 and we get a surprise. And it's a warning for us that we can assume in our lives we know how God operates, we know what he will do, and yet he will surprise us. And in Judges 14 and 15 in particular, we do get this surprise because in Judges we've had this cycle, this downward spiral that we've observed through the book so far. What's that spiral? Well, it is that God's people reject God. That's the start of it, isn't it? And you saw this last week in the incident, the story of Samson, that the cycle starts again. So right at the beginning of chapter 13, uh, which you looked at last week, you see that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's chapter, verse 1. So the people rebel against God. And God brings in a nation who take over the country. In this case, it's the Philistines who come in and dominate the land. Now, interestingly, as John brought out last week, you don't get the people of God crying out to God, which is odd, but that's the people. That's not God operating at that point. And so you then see in chapter 13, God starting to raise up a deliverer. He gives a son to Manoah and his wife. 
And we are told in verse 5, have a look at chapter 13, verse 5. It says, you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So we know what to expect. We've seen it before in the book of Judges. A deliverer will now come and will rescue Israel from the enemy. will fight for the Israelites against the enemy. We know what happens. It's predictable, isn't it? But chapter 14 starts with a surprise. Verses 1 and 2. Have a look at these. Did you spot the surprise? Samson went down to Timnah, so Samson is the rescuer, goes down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. Well, he's rude to his mum and dad. But he wants to marry a Philistine. But his job is to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He's not supposed to be marrying them. It's a shock. It would be like, I don't know if he does, but if Volodymyr Zelensky's son, if he has one, were to marry the daughter of a Russian oligarch. You go, what's going on? This isn't right. You're supposed to deliver the Israelites, not marry the enemy. And his mum and dad object, verse 3. They object to it. They say, can't we get your wife from one of our people? But he insists. What's going on? This isn't the way it should be. This deliverer isn't doing what he should be doing. Verse 4 is absolutely key. It's key to the whole passage, the whole uh, of these two chapters that we're looking at. Have a look at it. Verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. This is exactly how God is going to keep his promise of delivering the Israelites. Samson shouldn't be doing it shouldn't be marrying this Philistine woman. His parents are right to object, but yet the Lord will use this to achieve his purposes. Now I want you to see, we'll pick out three particular things in these two chapters that are unexpected, which will open our eyes more to God, his greatness, because our tendency in assuming that we know how God will work is that we reduce God to someone who's predictable. We know what he's like. We make him small when God is not small. And so let's see three surprising things. And the first is this. I've gone for longer titles this week. And you can see them on uh, the back of the order of service. The Lord accomplishes his purposes through a violent, disobedient, lust-driven bully. It's surprising, isn't it? That's what we see. Samson comes out of these two chapters very badly. See what he does. Chapter 14. Let's just skim our way through it. Thank you, Gene, for reading it. Just skim our way through it. First off, he demands a Philistine wife. We're just going to see how bad Samson is as we go through. He demands a Philistine wife. 
He's rude to his parents and he demands that they get him this wife. And then you get the incident with the lion and the honey, which if you look on your golden syrup jar, you see, you know, if it's a particular make, can't remember which make it is. Lions! Is it lions? Tate and Lyle. Okay, there we go. Whichever one it is. You see on the front there, there's the, the lion. That's from this story. Lion with, with bees around it. It's from this story. Okay, so why have we got that there? Well, partly because it happens. This lion attacks Samson. He grabs it, rips it in two like you would a goat. I'm sure we've all done that. The text seems to suggest it. But he rips this lion in, in two uh, and leaves it by the wayside. Uh, he goes and then sometime later comes back to it and sees the honey in there. Takes some out and eats it and gives it to his parents. Well, that's wrong. He shouldn't be doing that. It would be wrong for any Israelite to eat that honey because it's come from a dead animal, from a corpse. No Israelite should be eating it. It's unclean food. But for, for Samson in particular, it's bad because he's a Nazarite. Now, Nazarites um, were people, and you didn't have to be a Nazarite for your whole life. You could, be, you could take a Nazarite vow for a period of time, and you can read the regulations in, numbers, in the book of Numbers. But there were particular things that they weren't to do. And one of them was not to touch a dead body. And yet he's doing it. So for a Nazarite, he shouldn't be doing this. And yet he just, oh, who cares? He just eats it anyway. And he gives some to his mum and dad and doesn't tell them where it's from. So that's the bit with the lion. He then goes to a party, his sort of wedding party. And the word for the party is, it's, it's a drinking uh, party, which lasts for seven days. Now, a Nazarite should not be drinking alcohol. But here he is having a boozy do for, for seven days. And at the party, he sets this riddle. And it's a ridiculous riddle, isn't it? I mean, they, they provide 30 companions for him, and, and he gives this riddle. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Well, I mean, it's an impossible riddle. No one could... I mean, you might guess, but I mean, you can't work it out because it depends on him having ripped this line in half and got the honey from it. I mean, they didn't see it. How would they know? It's a ridiculous riddle, isn't it? But that's what he sets them and sets that, says to them, you know, if you get it, um, I'll give you 30 sets of clothes. If you, if you don't, then you give me 30 sets of clothes. And then we see his weakness, uh, which is women. And we'll see this through uh, beyond our chapters. That his... Uh, his bride-to-be for these seven days is wailing and crying, you know, for seven whole days. I mean, poor guy. I mean, surprised he gives in? Well, he, he does, and he tells her in the end what, what the answer to the riddle is, and she goes straight and tells the Philistines. So they tell him. He calls his wife a cow, which was rude then and rude now. Um, and... Uh, uh, and, and then he goes off and has his uh, and gets the, the garments to give to uh, the people that he'd set the riddle to. But he gets the garments by killing 30 people, 30 Philistines. And he storms off, doesn't go back to his bride. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, through this, there are twice when he's filled with the spirit. Once when he rips the lion in half and once when he goes off to kill Philistines. God empowers him to do those things. Now, Samson is just not the kind of person you expect the Lord to work through. 
One of the uh, scholars who wrote a book on, um, on Judges says this about Samson. Samson is disrespectful of his parents, callous towards his Nazarite calling, without any loyalty to his own people, compromising in his ethic, rude to his wife, flippant with his tongue, and driven by lust, eroticism, and appetite. You just don't expect God to work through this kind of person, do you? We know the kind of person that the Lord works through, and we've seen it through judges. I mean, okay, they've been getting worse and worse, but you know, you sort of think it's going to be someone like Gideon, maybe. He was unsure of himself. The Lord can say, no, no, you're a mighty warrior. Or someone maybe like Barak, who, uh, uh, who, um, the, Lord, um, uh, who the Lord uses, and yet is, is weak. Uh, and yet the Lord uses him. Yeah, yeah, that kind of person. We know the Lord uses the weak, the, the, the humble. We, we learn that, don't we? And the people maybe who are particularly committed to the Lord, the Lord uses that kind of person. Someone like later on in the Bible, David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, God uses that kind of person. But a Samson? Lord, that's not what you do. That's not who you are. You don't, you don't use that kind of person. Doesn't he? Now, don't get this wrong. It's not that God is saying it doesn't matter what Samson did. We aren't to be like him. We're to be humble and obedient to the Lord. That is good. But he is showing us he is God. And he can use those we don't expect. I wonder if in your life, in your workplace, in your family, with neighbours, maybe there are those who you just find it very hard to get on with. They're self-centred, maybe. Don't we assume God can't use those kind of people? He won't use those kind of people in any way. Now, again, don't get it wrong. It's not that it's okay what they're doing. But are we so sure God can't use them to achieve his purposes, even through them? God shows he's bigger than we assume so that's the kind of person God will use the deliverer God will use we don't expect him to use a Samson but he does second the Lord accomplishes his purposes in spite of his apathetic people now for this we've got to go into chapter 15 let me summarize a bit of chapter 15 so and you will need it open in front of you because I'll read a, a bit of it as well so at the beginning of chapter 15, Samson goes back to his wife, having stormed off. But we know from the end of chapter 14 that his bride was given to one of his companions. So obviously his father-in-law thought they hadn't got married. But he goes back saying, I mean, he goes back, doesn't take chocolates or flowers uh, in verse 15. He take, uh, in verse 1, he takes a young goat, obviously a thing to take. Uh, and he's obviously got uh, uh, romance in, in his mind. He says, I'm going to my wife's room. Well, her father refuses, it bars his way and says uh, he can't go there because he says he's given his wife to someone else. Which infuriates Samson. And so Samson does the bit with the foxes, if you know the story. Samson gets 300 foxes. Wouldn't you love him to come around here and grab 300 foxes? take them away anyway he, he grabs 300 foxes 
How he catches them, I've no idea. But anyway, he catches them, ties them together in pairs, ties their tails together, and puts a torch between them and sends them off into the um, Philistines' crops. And they, he burns down their crops. Uh, end of verse 5, their corn together with the vineyards and olive groves. Now, that's, a, that's devastating for the Philistines, isn't it? Well, they say, well, we'll get our revenge. So they kill Samson's wife and her father, uh, verse 6. Verse 7, Samson says, right, now I'm going to get even. And it's just, it's just escalating and escalating, isn't it? So he says, I'm going to get even. Verse 8, he attacks and viciously and slaughters many of them, and then he goes and hides. Well, the Philistines, they go, well, well we need to get our revenge now as well. And so they come to the people of Judah, which is one of the tribes of Israel, and the people of Judah say to them, what are you doing here? And they say, uh, we've come to get Samson. End of verse 9. Verse 11, let me read from there onwards. Verse 11. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realise that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered, we will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him, uh, sorry, so they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Now, did you see the state that God's people are in at this point? Are they ready to rise up, join their deliverer, and defeat the Philistines? No, they're not ready to do that at all. Rather, they go to Samson to try to take him to the Philistines to hand him over. They'd rather have an easier time, rather hand over Samson over to the Philistines than obey the Lord's instruction to drive out the enemy. It's a tragic situation. They're apathetic in the face of the enemy's oppression. They're willing to compromise for an easy life. They aren't looking for a rescue. And yet, the Lord works for these people anyway. He works on their behalf. We've got a terrible deliverer, and we've got an apathetic people, and yet the Lord works anyway. See, the Lord's people may not be up to much, but that doesn't stop the Lord from being at work. It turns out he doesn't actually need us. There's a quote that sometimes you hear people say, um, which I think I might have quoted before, but it winds me up, and it's this one. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. The quote goes on, actually. But th the idea of that is to say, with Jesus not here, Jesus 
um, in heaven, who's God going to use? Well, the only body he's got on earth is us, the church. Now, the church is the body of Christ. But it seems to imply, poor God, the only people that he's got, well, not poor God, but you know, the, only, the only tools he's got on earth are us. The only hands he's got are ours, the only feet ours. So it seems he's entirely dependent on us to work. What about countries where there are very few Christians or no Christians? I mean, God doesn't do anything there. Or in a country like ours, where by and large the church is very compromised, just reflecting the culture that we're in. Doesn't that make God out to be smaller than he really is? He often does work through his people, and it's wonderful when he does. But he doesn't have to. He can work through us, or he can work in spite of us. We really don't limit God at all. So the Lord accomplishes his purposes in spite of his people's apathy. Lastly, and I think this is probably the biggest surprise, the Lord accomplishes his purposes to stir up confrontation. Maybe that's our biggest surprise. Would you go back to Judges chapter 14, verse 4 again? Like I said, I think this is the key to the whole passage. Right at the start it says, His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time they were ruling over Israel. He wanted to confront the Philistines. Were his people going to do it? No, they didn't want to confront the Philistines. They wanted just to live under their rule. And, for, and Samson doesn't seem to have been up for it right at the beginning of the passage. But God wants confrontation. He twice empowers Samson to go and attack and kill Philistines. He stirs up an international crisis. We assume when the Lord moves, it will always be to bring peace, don't we? Isn't that our default setting? We think, oh, well, if the Lord moves powerfully in a place, that will be to bring peace. But that's not what we see here. With the Lord's people compromised and apathetic in the face of their oppressors, the Lord stirs things up. Is our understanding of the Lord big enough? That without being guilty of evil, he can stir things up and bring about conflict for good purposes. Now, of course, we want to apply this to the world we're in at the moment, a world where we are aware of much conflict. But we have to be careful. <laughs> because we have no word from the Lord to say what he is doing, for instance, in Ukraine. An important principle I was taught on Cornhill training course is event plus explanation equals revelation. You might have heard me say it before. You've got to have the event plus the explanation to have revelation, to know what God is doing in a place. Well, in this passage, we have the events, 
and we have the explanation of what the Lord was doing. And therefore we have revelation there to go, okay, I know what's going on in these passages with Samson. In Ukraine, we've got the events, but I don't have a word from the Lord. We don't have a word from the Lord to say exactly what he's doing. And therefore we must be very careful to assume we know what God is doing in that place. But don't we learn from Judges 14 and 15 that though war is tragic, loss of life and suffering are genuinely appalling, yet God is big enough to have some purposes of which we don't know. I think that gives us great hope, actually, that somehow God can purpose even war for good, even conflict for good. After all, what's the alternative? The alternative is worse, isn't it? That the Lord is not involved, that there is no good purpose for it or behind it. If we assume that the Lord is only involved in peaceful places around the world, where the church is faithful and leaders are godly, we will be limiting God to being active in only some parts of the world. Now, we need to apply this to our own personal circumstances as well. The Lord doesn't promise us ease and comfort, does he, in our own lives. Jesus warns us that the world will hate us. He said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, which doesn't mean we should take up swords and be violent, but that other people will turn against us as Christians, and we should expect that. We should expect that there will be stirrings up, that there will be conflict. That's what Jesus promises us. And the encouragement here is that it is all within the Lord's good purposes. We can trust him. Maybe we're tempted to ask, maybe you are, really? Is this really right? I think actually we need to think about this much more. Of course we can be aware of the Lord being at work in easy times, in good times, and in ways where we go, oh, I can see, um, you know, peace there, or, or things have worked out well, and we go, oh yeah, the Lord is at work there. Actually, don't we need to think much more about how is the Lord at work when things are difficult, when there is suffering, when there is hardship, when there is pain, because he is still at work in those times. And the place to look, of course, when we're thinking about this, is the cross of Jesus. Consider that for a moment, would you? Because what we see there when Jesus died was an act of brutality, a massive injustice against an innocent man. Did God purpose that event? Yes, he did. We know from Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, uh, Peter, speaking on the day of Pentecost, said this, uh, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Do you see both going on there? It was God's plan, and yet the people did it. It was wicked, it was evil and yet it was still within God's purposes. Both are true. God, without being guilty of evil, purposed that for great good. 
and great good was achieved. Because there, through that evil act that people committed, that is where our rescue was achieved. That is where, for us, our sin could be dealt with. And for all who will come to Jesus, their sin can be forgiven. There our debt was paid. So there, in that evil act that people committed, it all achieved God's purposes for the greatest good that there has ever been for you and me. So yes, God does know how to work for good through evil and suffering and death. And therefore, even in the lives of Jesus' followers, we mustn't assume God's purposes must be for ease and peace. Sometimes he stirs things up. Sometimes he even uses conflict and difficulties for individuals, for churches, for denominations. It's wonderful when God's people can live together in harmony, when there is peace. It is a good thing. But sometimes we need stirring up for our good. So let's be careful not to assume we know how the Lord works or to make God out to be predictable. God is not predictable. He is faithful. He is good. He is loving. But he is not predictable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you challenge us and you open our eyes more to your greatness. Father, there are many things in these passages, things we have thought about now, which are hard for us to get our heads around. But help us, Father, to know you as you truly are, not to make caricatures of you in our minds, not to assume that we know how you work, but to see you as you truly are, that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. Help us to be in awe of you and to worship you. Amen.